You're listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can have your seats. Thank you for standing with us. If you have a Bible there with you, uh, you can turn to John chapter 19, verse 16, as we'll be in and out of that passage today. As we look to the cross and we see the death of Jesus, we are in awe. We're in awe of his death. But if we look closely, closely at this passage, we see a promise. We also see a promise. Jesus promises to us that he will redeem and restore all of our losses. In John 19, verse 16, uh, we go through four movements, and I want to frame our sermon time this way into four points. My first point is Jesus finishes, Jesus begins, Jesus invites, and Jesus promises. One is Jesus finishes, second is Jesus begins, third is Jesus invites, and fourthly, Jesus promises. So our first point, Jesus begins. Jesus died on the cross the way he did to show you and me that God will redeem and restore all of our losses. And although that it's true that he defeated death, and this is obviously a marvelous thing, that God would defeat death, there is more. There is more. Jesus accomplished more than just defeating death on the cross. What helps us understand this fact is that death is actually not everyone's greatest fear. 
Some people look to death as an escape from the torture, the pain, the suffering, the failure, the sickness that they face in this world. And so we look to death sometimes as a way out. Jesus came to defeat more than death, but to restore some of our losses, all of our losses. Maybe you've heard it said this way, when someone passes, someone, a friend, well-meaning might say, at least they're no longer suffering. And it's this fact that we understand that explains why Jesus died, but not only why he died the, the way he did die, that Jesus died in a specific way. He suffered and lost. And now because he suffered, your suffering can matter. Jesus came and died to finish his cross work and to start a new work, a new work of restoration. So what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross? What exactly did he finish? Uh, Jesus finished his suffering. Prior uh, to going to the cross, Jesus would have been beaten within an inch of his life. He would have had, he would have been scourged with a whip. He would have had a crown of thorns jammed into his head. And in all of this, John highlights something in verse 17. If you have your Bible, you can see it. John says he was made to carry his own cross. He carried his own cross. I think Tim Keller captures what's happening at the crucifixion well. In his book, he writes it this way. Crucifixion was designed to be the most humiliating and gruesome method of, of execution. The Romans reserved it for the worst offenders. It was a protracted bloody public spectacle of extreme pain that usually ended in horrible death by shock or asphyxiation. Jesus finished his suffering on the cross and he also finished being crowned. He finished being crowned. Prior to his crucifixion, John tells us that Jesus is crowned with thorns, but he also gives us a picture of what's happening with the Jews and with the Roman authorities at the time. This act of, of stabbing a crown into Jesus' head was meant to mock him. It's meant to say, oh, you're a king. We should give you a crown. And this, this mockery took on a life of its own. And Pilate, in an effort to embarrass the religious leaders further, declares Jesus the king of the Jews in every language, in the most public place in his kingdom. In verse 20 and 22, Pilate ensures that Jesus will be proclaimed the king of the Jews. Can you see this? The, the, the Jewish leaders are upset. They want it to be changed. They don't want that to be true, but Pilate uses his authority to declare Jesus king of the Jews and to kill him. In God's sovereignty, there's a, there's a beautiful irony taking place. In God's sovereignty, he takes, he takes the religious envy of these, these leaders and he takes Pilate's political games and he crowns Jesus. He crowns Jesus with suffering and kingship and proclaims to the world in every tongue, in Aramaic, in Greek, and in Latin, that Jesus is king of the Jews. On the cross, Jesus finished his suffering. He finished being crowned. And he finished losing. Jesus lost everything. And John mentions one scene in particular where the, the soldiers gamble for Jesus' best clothes. They gamble for his tunic. What the soldiers took from Jesus that day was more than his clothes. 
right? Stripping him naked, taking more than his clothes. They took his dignity. They took all the material possessions he had left in this world. But what they took in material possessions, they could not take in his life. Jesus bows his head and gives up his own spirit. Jesus gives up his own body. He wants to go to the cross. Why does Jesus want to do this? John wants us to see that Jesus finished what he set out to do. Jesus finished what he set out to do. And he hints at it in verse 30. You can see in your Bible. You see what it says? John records Jesus' last cry. And he says, it is finished. The word here in Greek is pronounced tetelestai. Tetelestai. And there's something, there's something John's audience would have known that probably we don't know about this word. The word tetelestai was also written on any business document, any receipt that took place in a business transaction to indicate something. That the bill had been paid in full. At the bottom of the receipt that you would buy something at the marketplace, it would say tetelestai. Tetelestai. And do you see what John is saying? Do you see what Jesus is claiming? When we behold the cross and we hear him cry, tetelestai, we ought to see the connection. What Jesus accomplished, it's unmistakable. Jesus Christ died to pay for it, to pay in full, to pay for sin. It's paid in full. And that's why Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I paid for it. Tetelestai. Jesus finished work of redemption, of buying it back, of paying for sins on the cross is effective in us if, that's a big if, if we receive his gift of redemption. He brings a new work in us and he restores all of our losses. And this brings me to my second point. Jesus begins. Jesus finishes paying for sins and he begins a new work. If we receive Jesus' gift, his credit, his life for our life, he begins a new work in you. He begins a new work in me. A work of restoration. Who begins the work? The restoration. Who begins it? Jesus, right, that's good. Not me, Sunday school answer, right? Not me. He carried his own cross. That's what that means. He did the work that I could not do. He carried the bear, burden that I could not bear. Him and him alone. I like how one pastor uh, said it. He said, Christianity is not something you do as much as it is something that is done to you. Do you see that? I think, I think that's so true. Our challenge is allowing him to do that work in us. To allow him to do that work in us. This is what it means to place our faith in Jesus. We allow him to do that work in us. No matter how deep the work is, no matter how far the, the healing has to go, faith means we allow him to work. 
we allow him to heal. In the passage, only a few disciples are named, but John highlights Mary and her friends. Mary, Jesus' mother, and John are there at the foot of the cross. At the, and they're realizing as they see Jesus, their, their, their friend, their son, and their rabbi, their teacher, their Messiah, they're realizing their worst nightmare come true, that Jesus is crucified. And in their time when their faith was destroyed, Jesus notices them. He looks and he sees his mom. Did you catch that? God in Christ Jesus, the one who condescended, the one who comes to my level, down to your level, notices them and in his last act of life, begins something new. He begins to restore his mom. He says, dear woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The last thing that Jesus did in his life was to take care of his mom. Jesus will restore all the losses that Mary sustained in her life and he will restore all the losses that you have sustained. Jesus begins his new work of restoring his mother by restoring her loss of a son. And that's the only the beginning of Mary's restoration. When we think of Mary, we think of ourselves. We think of the passage. I was reminded this week in Matthew 19, 29, it says this, and everyone... That's you and me. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields or work for my sake will receive it a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus begins a deep work in restoration in Mary's life. And her challenge is now to receive it. To receive it. This brings me to my third observation of what Jesus is doing in the text before us. He invites us. <laughs> Jesus is, have you noticed this about Jesus? He's always inviting. He's always saying, come and see what I'm doing. Come, come deeper with me, further up, further in. He is the inviting God. Jesus invites Mary and John to receive redemption and he promises them that he's going to redeem and restore all of their losses. They need to decide what to do. And John and Mary do it and they follow him. Let me ask you, okay, if, if Jesus was standing here, not me, but if Jesus was standing here and he was inviting you to follow him, inviting you to receive his gift of redemption from sin, if he was here saying what I'm saying to you, what would stop you? What would stop you from, from going for it? I thought about this for myself. I can think of two reasons that we deny Jesus. The first reason we don't receive his invitation is because we're scared. If we're honest, we're scared to surrender. We're scared of the idea of not being autonomous in our own lives anymore. So in an effort to retain control, retain what we know, we keep Jesus at arm's length. Because we're, we're, we're afraid. We're afraid that we'll end up like Mary. But Mary's afraid to end up like us. We fear the loss of comforts and pleasure. But if this is true of you, then you do not know what you are missing. If this fear is controlling you, you do not know what you are missing. Mary knew that she is no fool to lose what she cannot keep so that she might gain what she cannot lose. That she could inherit eternal life. That she could inherit every redemption of her loss. 
But this myth of our autonomy, it's a myth that so many of us hold on to. So we seek to make the best of this life and try to redeem it another way. We say, what's good for you is, is what's good for you, what's good for me is, what good, is what's good for me. But what if it isn't? What if it isn't? There isn't another way to redeem this life. Mary knew there was no other way to redeem her losses. And I wonder if you do. Do you know that? I like how Fleming Rutledge says it in her book called Crucifixion. She says, human forgiveness is not enough. Wishful thinking about the intrinsic goodness of every human being is not enough. Unless God is the one who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, there cannot be serious talk of forgiveness. For the worst of the worst, the mass murderers, the torturers, the serial killings end, or even the least of the worst, the everyday offenses of our common humanity that cause our marriages to fail, friendships to end, enterprises to collapse, and the silent misery to be the common lot of millions. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. This is what is happening on Golgotha. Only Jesus can do this, not us. We're not autonomous. The second reason we don't receive all that Jesus invites us to is because we want to restore things our own way. We want to do it our own way. We see that it's broken and we try to fix it in our own strength. But this is the foundation of empty religion. This is the beating heart of moralism. We can't do it, but we believe the lie that if I work hard enough and do enough righteous things, if I can be better than other people, then I could fix it. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's not, you know, that's not me. I don't, let me ask you, do you think in this text, do you think that you're better than the soldiers? You're not, but a religious person would say that they are. To put it another way, we cannot add to the cross work of Christ. Do you want to know the difference between religion and Christianity? Okay, Religion and Christianity are very different. They're, they're actually not the same at all. It's a big misconception. If all, let me explain it this way. If, the, if all of the world's religions were gathered at the base of a mountain, and God, or inner peace, or joy, or life, or love, whatever you want to call it, is at the top of this mountain, and all of the world's religions are doing everything they can to climb and claw their way up this mountain, suffering a lot, doing lots of bad things, doing lots of good things, doing whatever we can to get up this mountain. Christianity is different in that it says we can't climb the mountain. And actually, God came down the mountain and he came beside us and he was crucified in our midst. And, and because he was crucified, he paid for us and he could carry us back up the mountain. That he carries me on his shoulders. He came down the mountain to be crucified in the midst of your pain. Christianity says you can welcome God to come and sit with you in your pain because only Christ is the God who is able to empathize with you in your weaknesses. This God who came down the mountain. This is what it means to receive redemption. And if we do this, we allow him to work in our lives however he wants. Jesus promises that he will restore all of our losses. This is my last point for us, that Jesus promises to redeem and restore all of our losses as, 
as we invite him to be Lord and Savior, as we do this, Jesus expresses the generosity of God towards us. Like he carried his cross, he picks you up and carries you back to God. One preacher said, the generosity of God means the crucifixion of the Son. Generosity of God means the crucifixion of the Son. What what they mean by that is God longs to redeem you. God longs to restore you. God longs for you to be back with him. As I was thinking about this truth in my own life, I remembered this story that somebody told me about a king and a general. I want to share that with you. There was a king and, and a faithful general who had loved him, so much so that he had given his life for him on the battlefield and he was dying in a hospital bed. And the king goes to visit him to say goodbye. And the general has one final request of the king. He says, my wife is dead and I'm about to die. And and we have a young child. I have a son. Would you raise this son? The king agrees to raise the son. And he, he brings up the son as a prince, as an adopted foster son in the king's house. And the son comes of age. And so the king restores the, the family name and he, and he brings the son. He gives him a, a orders in the military. He gives him his own uh, command in the military. And the son blows it. He, he becomes quickly addicted to gambling. And he runs out of money. And so he starts to embezzle funds that are meant for his regiment. One night he's sitting in his tent going over the books realizing that he's going to be found out. He's going to be found out. And so he decides to take his life. And he drinks and he drinks until he has the resolve to take his life. And he loads the revolver and he drinks once more and he falls asleep on the table. And the king, who often would go through the camp uh, looking around as a secret shopper to see how his military is doing, in disguise, he he looks in on his son in his tent. And And he sees what's happening. He looks at the book. He pushes his body away from the books and he sees what is happening. He knows immediately what he's going to do. He knows immediately what he's going to do. That morning, the son woke up and to his shock, his revolver was gone. His revolver was gone, and in in place of the gun was a promissory note that said this, I, the king, will pay the full amount from my own personal funds to make up the difference found not in this book. And it was sealed with the king's personal seal. The king had seen the young man sin clearly, the full dimensions of what he had done, but he covered it, and he paid for it personally. And this is what it means to be redeemed. Do you see this? That all my sins have been forgiven. They are paid for. And this is why you and me who who trust Jesus in his redemption, this is why you and me, when people sin against us, we can say to them, "I I see your sin. I see it plainly, but I can cover it. I can cover it. I can cover it with forgiveness because Jesus saw my sin and covered it. It's precisely because God and Jesus Christ came into this world disguised as a Nazarene rabbi. It's precisely because this. And he looked into our hearts and he saw the worst failures. He saw the the most incredible losses that you have had to bear. And he paid for it. But he didn't pay for it with just cash. He paid for it with his very life. 
Jesus paid for our sins and all of our losses with his very life. Our sins put him to death. Our hearts long to know that it, does God care for me? Will he restore what has been taken from me? He does, and he will. Jesus on the cross says, Tetelestai. And for those who receive his redemption, his promises, he, he promises to them complete restoration. Think about what you've lost. What have you lost? He can restore it. Where have you failed? We all have, but he, he can cover it. If we allow him to work in our lives. Later in Revelation, John writes this in verse, chapter 21, verse 3. It says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be, will be there. <clears throat> Excuse me. God himself will be there with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. The cross, when we look at the cross, we behold the cross, we see that it opens up the way for resurrection. It opens up the way for restoration. The cross is the beginning of the restoration of all things. The early Christians would have believed that God, what God did in Jesus Christ, he was going to do for his entire creation. That's what it means to live Christianly, to, to hold on to that promise. To live into this promise. If you want to become a restored person, you must reach a point where you are willingly and happily able to give everything and everyone over to God. Everything in your life. As we lift our eyes from the cross of Jesus Christ, we see a man who has lost everything. We see a God who has given everything. But why? Look and see him there. With his last breath, hear him say, Tetelestai, it is finished. I have done it. I have lost it all. And all sin is paid. Now you will see me and know that I am with you, that I am for you, that I have lost everything so that I might gain it all. I've given my life, my very body, in torturous crucifixion so that you may know the power of my love. Where in all the world is God's love most poignant? On the cross. Behold Jesus crucified and hear his promise. I will redeem and restore all of your losses. I just want to pray for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you uh, in your generosity would uh, restore us, Lord, that you would give your life in your son. Good Friday reminds us that even when things are not good, when our lives are filled with sickness, hardship, and sorrow, and pain, that none of this will be wasted. That God, in your work of redemption, in your miraculous work of restoration, you are making us whole again. There is purpose to our suffering in Christ alone. Lord, we thank you for this truth today. Lord, I pray for my friends that are uh, contemplating what this means for their lives. 
Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith that Mary had to follow you no matter how deep you want to heal. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Um, as a way of reflecting upon the scriptures and, and what God may be saying to you, we wanted to create some space for you to meditate on this and to think about what God is doing. What is God inviting you to? So I just want to invite you to remain seated and listen to the words of the song as an invitation from God towards you today. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.